Super Talk Mississippi media production. In Mississippi, with our ever-changing weather, termites and household pests can disrupt your family life and take a toll on your home. Call Family Termite and let us help protect your home. 601-933-1014. Or reach us at www.family-termite.com. What is up on a Wednesday? I am Brian Scott Rippey. My co-conspirator, as always, is Michael Borky. We appreciate you stopping by on this February 12th edition of the Rebel Report podcast. A lot to get into today. Ole Miss played a basketball game last night. They beat State 83-58. Brian Tyree lost his mind. Uh, kind of stole the show from what would have probably been a game where you talked a bunch about Hadim C and the way he played. But we'll get into both of those. But those guys, how that game went, Ole Miss baseball held its media day yesterday. Mike Bianco sort of kind of gave a starting lineup. He basically gave like four positions and then left everything else open. We'll get into that some. The rotation is set. And then just kind of see where uh, everything else takes us. What's up? Did you uh, – oh, I probably have uh, I probably have a take to walk back as well. But uh, did you watch the game last night? I mean, that's a oh, facetious question. Course, just what did you think? Yeah. yeah I, I, had, um, I had Ole Miss and State on one TV, and I, I watched New Orleans just beat the shit out of Portland last night. That was awesome uh, on the other TV. Um, but, yeah, it, so Brian Tyree, I tweeted this as well, and I'm not trying to take away from his performance because he outscored Mississippi State by himself in the second half. He was unbelievable. I mean, just when he's locked in like that, Mississippi State, who, as we talked about on, I guess it, it came out on Monday's show, uh, about how talented they are. I mean, they've got good guards. They have, obviously, an NBA big, and more on him in a little bit, because Ole Miss did the one thing that you can get to Reggie Perry. I know he had 24, um, but they frustrated him. And he's got really bad body language when he's frustrated. Ole Miss was able to do that last night. But Witherspoon and Woodard and Stewart, those are good guards. Like, not just even average SEC guards. Like, that's a talented basketball team. And he went completely off in the second half yesterday. But my biggest takeaway wasn't so much about Tyree. I mean, 40 points is 40 points, but you knew that he was capable of scoring like that. It was Hadim C. I think Hadim C's play, especially going into halftime with Perry and Adu, who are bigs that are better than he's seen all year long, um, was what kept them in that game and then allowed Tyree to have that explosion in the second half. He gets better every single game. That was his toughest test, and he's still got to get a little bit stronger. But his finishing at the rim was really, really good last night. Got rebounds as well. His best game came against his biggest challenge. That's what kept Ole Miss in it in the first half. And that's what allowed Bree and Tyree to just go off in the second half. So Tyree's the story, deservedly so. But Hadim C deserves a ton of credit for being as good as he was last night. Yeah, it was kind of a weird game because the 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 first I would say eleven minutes kind of pushed Ole Miss to the brink. Tyree got into foul trouble. He's I think he had two fouls within two and a half minutes. He has to sit. I uh, I didn't figure he would sit for the rest of the half or anything close to it. He really only sat in about two to three minute spurts when they felt like they were in a position to get him out of the game, which was kind of an interesting chess match in its in its own right. But he gets two fouls. They don't have an answer for Perry inside. State was just absolutely hammering Ole Miss on the glass. I think at one point the rebounding advantage was like 18 to 8. Or maybe, yeah, it's 18 to 8 at one point. And then at one point, State had as many offensive rebounds, six as Ole Miss had total rebounds. 
or defensive rebounds, maybe it was. Either way, they didn't have an answer for Perry inside. They were making an effort to get it in there. Uh, I mean, you could tell Ole Miss opened the game with a couple trips to zone and then tried to go man, and that was just terrible. Because, like, when Perry catches it eight feet from the block and he has, I mean, C puts up a little more resistance, but, like, when Dude Column was on him, like, it was over. But then the game really kind of shifted. It got to a 31-18 state. Tyree's in foul trouble. They're not doing anything offensively. And I was thinking here, like, State has a chance here to really kind of put this thing to bed before it ever really gets started. And that's not really what happened at all. Tyree came back in the game. They made a couple of jump shots. And then Reggie Perry picked up his second foul. And that's really when the game turned. And that's when you saw, as you were alluding to, C keep them in the game. Yeah, he really kind of helped spark that 13-1 to or 13-5. to Whatever the run was to close the half, Ole Miss ends up closing the half. At 35-33, goes to 34-33 after they took away some point or whatever the yeah, hell it was. and they did that, Rippy. The three-pointer that they changed to a two happened with four minutes to go, like 4.50 to go in the half. And I'm thinking, like, hey, they got the call right, which, fine, because his foot was definitely on the line. But was there not any point between about 4.50 when the shot was made and halftime where you could have taken a quick look at that and had the point the, taken the away t- from you? The time they would be able to look at it was at the under under four media timeout, and I guess they didn't either detect it or they didn't know. But, but I don't both think refs, by the way, both of them signaled two, and the scorekeeper still gave them a three anyway. They showed well, the that, replay, and both guys are holding up two to the scorer's table, and they still screwed it up. Well, then that's probably what it was. If it wasn't like uh, documented as a three-pointer and it was just the scoreboard guy putting it up, then it probably took them a while to catch that they actually gave him three instead of two if I had to guess. But they way, go on the-, the half there. So I tweeted this. Man, college basketball sometimes, it sucks so much because it, and it, it helped actually Ole Miss climb back into the game. But for like seven game minutes, which is like 25 actual minutes, the game was whistle, two free throws. Whistle, two free throws. Whistle, two free throws. And it was brutal to watch. And that did help Ole Miss get back into the game, though, at the half. They, they made their free throws. Mississippi State missed a few, and then Schuler hits that shot at the end of the half, and boom, they're right back in it. So the pace stunk out loud. It was hard to watch, but that and C's play kind of kept them in it. Yeah, so it got to 31-18, to 18, and then that was really kind of when Ole Miss made their, their push rate. Uh, Perry picks up his second foul, and that's when C really kind of uh, helped Ole Miss stay at arm's length, as Kermit Davis described it, because it, the, his first eight minutes were actually pretty shitty. He he bungled a couple of long rolls and dropped the ball out of bounds. He missed what would have been an easy two points on like an alley-oop type dunk thing. Uh, like I, I think a byproduct of his first 20, uh, 12 minutes being so bad is why he was so open late in the half, is they were not really concerned with him rolling to the basket at all, because no events. He kind of oven mid-handed both of uh, both of the first couple opportunities he had, and then Ole Miss closes the half on like thirteen to five run or whatever. It goes to the half. They're only down one somehow when they played poorly. Tyree was in foul trouble, and you could really feel the game starting to shift at that point because State had a chance to really step on Ole Miss's neck and and wasn't able to do it. And they went to that one three one that they kind of sink back into a two three. And I'm not sure I've ever seen. And team handle just a pretty it's not a token because it's more sophisticated than that and it's designed to not I mean it's designed to eat up seconds into a possession but they are they are trying to turn you over with it so it's not really like a token trap but like it's not that sophisticated I've never seen a a, a, a 
team attack it that poorly. I mean, I, you could think a couple of those AK teams when they played Kermit at middle uh, had a terrible time with it. But State just looked completely disoriented when Ole Miss went to that 13 half-court trap kind of back into a zone or whatever. And that's really what changed this game because the they, they kept it doing it in the second half and State had a bunch of empty trips. I think State was like 7 of 23 from the field in the second half, and that's really what kind of paved the way for Tyree to take control of the game offensively. State couldn't do anything against that zone. And, like, you knew – I mean, Howland said after the game they worked on all weekend break. They've had trouble with that multiple times in the last two years in the three meetings now since Kermit has been there. You know, they had a little bit of trouble with it when AK did it because AK kind of borrowed it from Kermit. Like, I just figured they would be better prepared for it because it's not that complex of a thing – like it's designed to eat nine to eleven seconds off of state's possessions and deter them from getting the ball in the post. And it's like they didn't even try it. Like every jump shot state took from eighteen feet and out was a W for Ole Miss. Now, if state had just kind of shot if state had shot the ball better, I think they were like two of sixteen from three, you would just kind of live with it if you're Ole Miss. Which is if good state, for twelve percent, by the way. Yeah, that's not great. But like if, if state had shot if state had made 10 three-pointers last night, there really wasn't anything Ole Miss can do because it's kind of pick your poison. So, like, if that's the way Ole Miss was going to lose and that's the way they were kind of going to go down with the ship, whatever, you just kind of tip your cap. But state didn't even really try to get the ball in the post to Perry, who somehow still, I think, ended up with 24-8. and eight. He's, you know, an SEC player of the year in my book. But that's really what kind of shifted the game. The, the end of the first half when C played well and they went on that run despite playing so poorly – and then that zone in the second half, in particular, just gave them all types of issues. I was as, as good as State's guards are. I was actually a little bit shocked at just how terribly they handled that. Um, maybe that's because they aren't exactly well coached. Well, so and I, I, I was texting Bracken last night during the game, friend of the program, and he pointed it out to me. And I was, I was having a little bit of trouble articulating it, but like on the offensive end, for as much talent as Howland has. One, there's not much movement, and I know that's like a general term for like kind of a naked eye type of thing for college basketball. But it's no, but man, it so means bland. something. You you know what you see when you watch it, and if they're not moving the basketball, that does mean something. I know it sounds pedestrian, but it's true. That's that was but what it's old bland. They run the same two ago. sets. They run the same. They run some variation of the same two sets every time down the floor, and you would just think. You would get a little more creative when you have the options you have. You mentioned their backcourt. If you couple that with Perry, like, like I'm not trying to be that guy, but Kermit would win 26 games with that group at minimum. Yeah, but you're not being that guy, man. That's absolutely true. And, and I was going back and forth with some state fans on Twitter, not in a negative way, just you know, responding and stuff to state fans. And I mean, they it, mostly they all agree. They they see what we see. So you're not being that guy. It's just absolutely true. The biggest mistake Mississippi State basketball ever made was having Kermit Davis ready for you to hire and picking Rick Ray. Because even though Ben Halland has elevated your recruiting profile, I remember when they signed Malik Newman. That was a huge deal, and he was a one-and-done at Mississippi State, and they weren't a good basketball team. And yet again last night, just like you've seen, I mean, for years now, I mean, well, Ole Miss was seven and three in the last ten against Mississippi State. So now they're eight and three in the last eleven against Mississippi State. At what point did Ole Miss have a more talented basketball team than Mississippi State in those last eleven games? I mean, they did it, but I like I, I was See, thinking there, about there that. it is, and th that's what it comes down to is what. And Tyree uh, last night is probably an anomaly because he was just out of this world special, and uh, I mean. I could have coached 
the second half of that game with Tyree playing that well, and you probably still win just because he was he was an automatic bucket and beat them by himself. But that that further exemplifies the the difference, the the huge gap in floor coaching ability between Kermit Davis and Ben Hallen. Last night was a perfect example of that. And Mississippi State has a, a legit NBA big. Ole Miss is weak or supposed to be weak at the post and a really good collection of experienced guards. And they went into Oxford last night and got blown the hell out. That should, and basketball is a unique sport where sometimes you just lose games. But eight of the last 11, that problem lies squarely on the shoulders of the coach. They've got a real problem there with that. It's a two-way street, though, because there's two ways to go about things. Because I think, if, I mean, everyone, it's, I don't know if it's as simple as if State had hired Kermit Davis back then, because I don't think Kermit Davis would attract that level of talent to campus. Like, that's just not really his thing. Like, in ter- I mean, he'd probably, it's probably easier to recruit basketball wise to State than it is to Ole Miss. And he'd probably get a higher level, but I don't think he would get the type of player. So there's kind of two ways of going about things. Because, I mean, Howland has a long track record now of recruiting some really, really just elite special talent. And, yeah, not always – I mean, kind of gets his pants pulled down by some guys uh, in terms of in-game. But Bruce Pearl kind of does the same thing. Bruce Pearl kind of does what he does recruiting-wise, knows the style he want to play. But if it came down to X's and O's and and kind of in-game strategy, he's not really the best either. So there's really two schools of thought and two ways of going about things. I mean, there's a million ways to run a college basketball program. And you just kind of have to live with whatever way – but at the same time, I mean, if he gets that team to the NCAA tournament, that's back-to-back tournament appearances, and he inherited a program that was completely dead uh, and really just in kind of shitty shape when Rick Ray left it. So there's two ways of going about it. There it's is. It's just when, it, it's, but, uh, when you're underwhelming, it, it looks worse when you have that amount of talent on the floor. So I don't know. Right. There's- and year, I mean, first NCAA tournament, you got beat by Liberty in the first round. I mean, so your tournament year was a one-and-done to a team that you're supposed to be better than uh, out in San Jose. So, like, you, your fans didn't even get to experience the NCAA tournament. And it was like, well, didn't the game start at, like, 11 o'clock at night? I mean, it just even making the tournament was still just a negative feeling. And that team's not making the tournament this year, man. It, it's not happening. They were already on the outside looking in before last night. And there is nothing on their schedule, even if they went out. I mean, that would probably get them back on the bubble. But realistically, that's just not going to happen. They're not making the tournament this year. I mean, that if, last night I mean, probably went, put the nail in that six call. and five. They are six and five in the SEC. They have uh, not a single good win, uh, not one that's going to stand out on a resume. They were, I mean, with they were already field, in the first though, four outfield. With this field, though, 12 and six in the SEC is going to be next impossible to leave out. That, but that requires them to win out. And yeah, no doubt. Looking at I mean, their schedule, they still have. I mean, well, they go to Arkansas. That should be a game that they win. But South Carolina is not going to be easy. They have Alabama. They have to go to South Carolina. And they have to play Ole Miss again, who just beat them by almost 30 points. It's it's tough. And um, I know we've gone down a Ben Hallen rabbit hole. But, I mean, they sit at 48 in the net right now with not a single game that will help their net remaining on the schedule. I just think the field's going to come back down to earth. And if State can kind of win – I mean, they probably can't lose more than two games, I think, going down the stretch and maybe do some work in Nashville. But I think I think, I think, think we're overestimating the, the strength of the bubble yeah, at this point because this is so. going to be those years where you have to just sling 
64 teams in or 68 teams into the tournament because on the same token, while Ole Miss probably has a, a better winner to Penn State, whatever, uh, I mean, you're talking about them being one win away from kind of being on the radar too, which we'll get to that in a minute, but I'll take a break to tell you. Podcast brought to you by LBs. We're three days away from baseball season. Go see Greg. He feeds the baseball team. He can feed you while you watch the baseball team. Steaks, custom cut sausages. They've got the Swayze game packs. You can go get one of those, throw some sausages, steaks on the grill, and watch the baseball team this weekend. Go see him. Tell him we sent you University Avenue across from Kroger. Appreciate Greg sponsoring the show. It's undoubtedly the best place in Mississippi to get meat. He, uh, You can go in there and get a plate lunch. He's got something cooking every day and decide what you want to throw on the grill later. He's got all kinds of stuff. He can help you out. He helps you with the gambling picks. He can definitely help you with your meat needs. Uh, really, this game, we kind of bury the lead there, kind of going, uh, kind of, uh, dancing around it. Tyree was just kind of transcended in this game and he, he scored 40 points. Like, I don't mean this to sound like taking away from it, but the game kind of got silly at the end. Once he got going in the second half, the last, like, I would say, you know, seven to nine points, he was just kind of heat checking folks. But I, I mean, there was one three in particular. I don't remember what the score was. You may have to help me, but it was a contested NBA plus range three. And by contested, I mean, the, the shot almost got blocked. And, I mean, just that was one of those shots where after he makes it, you look around and think, well, I mean, what the hell? That, this just isn't right. It's like a video game. He's got the basketball that's on fire when he pulls up for that. Yeah, Blake Henson probably had a wet dream about that down the stretch because <laughs> that's probably what he dreams about. But it's like – it's just – it's hard. So it's interesting. I said a couple weeks ago when someone asked on like a mailback Friday, it was about a month ago, uh, Stefan Moody or Bree and Tyree, I, I chose Moody. If like it was, I think it was you were coaching a team. Who would you take? And I took Moody just because of his defense. And now I'm beginning to think I need to walk that back. And I, I mean, Moody's still a much better defender than Tyree is. But man, you like Tyree's averaged like 26 a game since I made those comments. I think I added up. But like, I he just he he scores and. Curtis Davis articulated this better than I probably could have. Us, I want he scores at all three levels, probably better than Stefan Moody, and he's shooting it at a clip that's just kind of ridiculous. But when he gets going to the rim, and I, you can see this in live action, but again, Davis articulated it better than I could. When he gets his shoulders by you and he's beat you, a, taking a step, and he squares his shoulders up to the rim when he's driving, it's over because he's either going to score. You're going to foul him because of the angle, or he's going to finish through contact, and he's going to get an and one. Like, there's really just no stopping it 99 times out of 100. And I've really never seen anything like it. Like, I've last last night was the closest thing to just kind of it all. I've been of like a scoring performance at a basketball game I've seen in person. I mean, you've there have been a couple coaches that have come through Oxford this year, whether it be in a winning or a losing effort. Of Will Wade kind of comes to mind after they lost a couple weeks ago. Is just saying, even I mean, scouting a port be, be damned when he gets going to his right, he he he's unstoppable. Like he can't be guarded, and it's it's unbelievable. And and you know, for as much as he kind of, I mean, he, he he's taking crap in in the past during his career for body language and maybe not quite being a leader type of thing. But you now look at this kid, and he's in the final days of his college career. He had to overcome an ACL injury when he got to school. He tore his he tore his ACL April after his senior season, jumping over a ball rack in a dunk contest. He had to overcome that. His sophomore year, the team and I'm not saying he did or did not play a part of it, but the team quit on Andy Kennedy. They went 12 and 20. And in this day and age of college basketball, 
you know, players of that caliber are probably thinking, hey, you know, to hell with this, I'm going to go somewhere else. He didn't do that. You know, they make the tournament last year. They have a horrible month of January. They're about one and seven. They have nothing to play for. He could have quit there, and he still kind of continues to just bring it every night. And, you know, we talked about that meeting that he and Davis had about two weeks ago before practice where he just kind of talked about a bunch of different things. And, you know, as he enters the final days of his college career, he's just kind of saying, screw it, I'm going to play the best basketball I can the last month of the season. And I think that's really freed not only him up and his entire team. And that's what I kind of wrote about at supertalk.fm last night. You can go uh, catch it if you want to. It's like two, three weeks ago, they lost to LSU on a Saturday night and he was about in tears after that game. He had scored 36. Like that was the, that was the game where they went uh, nine of 19 from the free throw line. And he was nine of nine type of deal. And it was, you could tell he was just kind of miffed as to what else he could do. And at that point, like you really couldn't have blamed the kid for mailing it in, and he just has it. So for like all of his flaws, and you talk about body language, leadership, or whatever, he's continued to bring it, and they're now kind of, sort of, kind of back on the radar of some postseason. Oh, for sure, man. I mean, even John Rothstein, who I know, see, everybody makes fun of that guy. I love it. He's got a shtick, and it's goofy, and it's weird. I like that guy. But even he last night was like, hey. Ole Miss can win a lot of games down the stretch and get back on to the bubble, and they could. Um, probably not going to start this weekend. Just a difficult challenge with Kentucky. But as you mentioned with Mississippi State, um, the 68 teams have to make the tournament, and I don't think Ole Miss will be one of them, but at least now you've got meaningful basketball games to play in February. I mean, even if they play their way into the NIT, as we talked about Monday, recovering from that kind of a start to playing postseason basketball beyond the SEC tournament, I think would be a really good thing. NCAA tournament, NIT, either one is a positive step considering the start. And will they make the tournament? No. Can they? It's, I mean, you go beat Kentucky on Saturday and the conversation dramatically changes, but they still have a shot like at Auburn, for example. Uh, to get one of these wins that changes the outlook. Again, I don't think it's going to happen, but they're playing meaningful basketball again. How they respond to it will be interesting because instead of, as you've mentioned, like, ah, there's nothing to play for. We might as well just say screw it and go out and try to play our best and whatever. Maybe pressure comes back into fold. I doubt it, but that's something to at least keep an eye on is now that the games matter a little bit more, how they handle it. Um, But nothing but good is going on with them right now. Even if they don't make the tournament, playing well this late, getting to postseason basketball is nothing but positive. And, you know, I hope they're able to pull that off. It's good for that team in that program. Yeah, I mean, Tyree certainly talks like a guy that thinks they can get into the postseason. And obviously you would, I guess, if, you know, as a fan, you probably wouldn't want him to have any other mindset than that. They obviously, they, they have a very long way to go. But yeah, I mean, they're playing freely. I mean, you get a free crack at Kentucky, but I mean, even like no matter really what happens the rest of the year, when you go to Nashville with a guy that can do that on a given night, like it's not really inconceivable to win four games in four nights or five games or whatever. If they play themselves out of Wednesday, four games, you get what I'm saying. It's not inconceivable. So, I mean, as long as they're still mathematically in it, they seem like a team that's really just not going to fold. Right. And And if you look at their schedule, uh, they've got – what should be at least three wins with Missouri twice and Vanderbilt. Then you have Alabama at home, which probably a game you should win, although they're playing better lately. Uh, but 
they have three for sure wins left, a toss-up with Alabama, probably a toss-up at Mississippi State, and two free shots with Kentucky and Auburn. Yeah, and like you, I mean, like we mentioned, if he somehow, and I don't think it's going to happen, but I mean, if they win in Lexington on Saturday, then you're kind of sitting there thinking and you're doing the math and it's a top 20 road win. The net, I don't know what it would put him in, but like that net's probably throwing you, they were at 93 entering the game. If you beat Kentucky, that's probably throwing you in the 70s somewhere. And then you're really talking about, okay, you're not a, you're not completely out of this. Like I would give them actually a legitimate shot at playing their way back into this thing if they were to win. Again, tall task. Kentucky's playing pretty good basketball. They are currently 81, so I bet they get into the 60s if they beat Kentucky. Yeah, and that's really putting you right in the thick of it. So, like, I mean, you're you're well win away, which, you know, given the start they had, that's really all they can ask for. And, you know, they're playing well. They're playing better in the post. You know, they've slimmed down their rotation. They're basically playing eight dudes. It's basically dude column. Austin Crowley and a little bit of Bryce Williams and it's kind of working for them but this is kind of the team like it's going to suck for them though if 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 they're not able I mean I don't think they're going to end up in the tournament but like if they get close they're going to look back at the month of January and really unfortunately just kind of kick themselves because if they had just turned one of these games it, it it would be an entirely different conversation but nevertheless they're playing pretty good it was a good win last night they had a lively crowd. They were playing well. God, you know, C played Is this too hot game. of a take, by the way, that the athletic department needed these three games as a whole? I mean, I know when football season comes, everybody will be so obsessed with Lane Kiffin. And the seat that I saw season ticket sales at this point are 220% ahead of the pace last year. Think about that for a second. 220% ahead of last year's pace in season ticket sales. Wild. But with recruiting not ending well, and although people around here love baseball, there's not the, the buildup into this season because it's a lot of new pieces and the expectations aren't high. The feeling wasn't great around that program and around the fans and stuff. And these three games have kind of given it a little bit of a boost. I don't think it's going to change anything drastically, but the people kind of needed this. The, the basketball team finally playing like you thought they were going to, a nice bridge into baseball season – I think everybody needed this. I would certainly argue the basketball program needed this because as we talked about before, like if they had cratered and they had gone, you know, I mean, it didn't even really have to be two and 16, but if they had taken a huge step backwards and really continue to struggle this year, you're sitting there kind of scratching your head, like where exactly is this program at again type of thing. But I, I think Kermit Davis needed it to kind of, not that he needs to necessarily validate himself, but like, but like to me, this kind of stretch is proving that one, last year wasn't necessarily a flash in the pan, and two, that this team was underperforming instead of just not being good or being just completely over, overhyped. So I don't know. They're in an interesting place. Like I, I'm going to be, unfortunately, probably at Swayze Field, but I'm going to be interested watching that game on Saturday just to kind of see what happens and how it plays out. Because again, anytime you have a guard that can go for forty and score at all three levels, you got a chance really no matter who you play. So I think that game's one o'clock, if I'm not mistaken. I double check that. Yeah, one o'clock central time. So that'll be interesting. It, it, they're kind of playing a game that that means something again. And so, you know, if they're able to win that, I'm going to pull up their schedule real quick because I don't remember what they have after that. Isn't it like Alabama? No, they go to Missouri. I mean. So they're four and seven. If they were able to somehow pull like pull it off Saturday, you go to Missouri with a chance to get to six and seven, and then you come back home for 
this will ever load. You come back home for Alabama and then at Auburn. And that at that point, if you're able to actually pull this off, at that point, that week probably defines your season. Because you go Alabama-Auburn, and then you have two home games against Vandy and Missouri, and then finish at State. So like, if you're able to pull this off next Saturday and avoid disaster in Missouri, that Alabama-Auburn week is actually probably going to decide whether you're 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 actually kind of legitimately going to pull this off or not. Like to me, that that would be kind of the make or break week. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to follow. They're back in it. It's certainly from a content perspective more interesting than them continuing to blow leads and lose games the way they have. Elsewhere, we we uh, we had baseball media day yesterday. I was kind of going blank there for a second. Mike Bianco kind of gave a starting lineup. The rotation was, uh, I'm not tooting my own horn here because this was fairly obvious, but exactly what we told you. You go Doug Nikhazy, uh Gunnar Hoagland, and Derek Diamond. I think Wes Burton made a pretty good push at a weekend rotation spot. I think Drew McDaniel was probably a little bit in the mix too. Uh, you know, again, none of this stuff is set in stone. Uh, Doug, I, I would imagine, I would wonder how many Ole Miss fans that weren't around the team every day knew who Doug Nikhazy was at this time last year. So, you know, none of this is set in stone, but that's your rotation. Well, uh, I, I wasn't shocked by anything there. Uh, you did have, you know, that's kind of the second ripple effect of when the rotation's announced. You have people, you know, morally outraged online about uh, Doug Nikhazy not being suspended. Whatever, I get it. If you want him to be suspended, it, I mean, it's not a good look. I, I, I guess is the final thing I'll say on it. I mean, I no, get they're it, doing it's the not, but, but it, I it's a bad why look. they're doing it. It, it, it. There are worse things that have happened that have led to lesser punishment. I, I don't know, man. I. I think they probably would have been better served to, to go ahead and, and do that. But, I mean, if you're going to spend your time mad about that, then you should probably find a different hobby or a hobby in general, just something to care about. It's just the optics of them playing the number one team in the country. I mean, drinking and driving, like, I'm not making light of the issue. It's very, like, it, it, it's incredibly it's stupid. dangerous. Yeah, it's, it's stupid. stupid. And dangerous not only for him, but for other people. But again, like, I, I just, I don't know. I, I guess it's become, I'm not surprised with it in college athletics either. Like, they, you know, everything's about controlling the message. And so when they, quote, handle things internally, like, I'm not really shocked. Because it's not like the NFL where you have Roger Goodell in a league handling suspensions. When your own school, who kind of has a vested interest in the whole thing, uh, is in charge of handling the punishment, then, you know, I mean, shocker. They're, they're going to be light on it. But of course, and man, uh, I don't know if we want to go down this rabbit hole again today, but the optics, it was a good word because it, like when Richard was off, I think Friday, and so it was just you, me, and hey, dad, uh, he asked the question. He, he didn't dive into the weeds like this, but he did ask the question, and it's a fair question. Um, would it have been different if it was, say, South Alabama? That's a really fair question. Uh, you, you, your answer is no, because there is precedent, but a lot of people don't know the precedent because it's not... It wasn't the Friday night starter before the number one team in the country. Um, so that's what that leads to is the question of, you know, if it wasn't Louisville, if it wasn't a former assistant in a series that the fans are going to care about the outcome a lot more than they probably should, um, would this happen otherwise? It's a fair question, but you say the answer is yes, no matter who the opponent. 
From what I understand, yes. But again, that's an, I, if you think that's hard to believe, that wouldn't shock me either. But anyway, you know, you've got that. You've got Diamond on Sunday. I'll be interested to see how he holds up. I talked to him for a minute yesterday. Um, seems like what a really kind of a prospect kid. was he? Uh, I mean, he was high. He was highly rated. I don't think he was a. I don't think he was very much in danger of of going to the draft. But the kid throws four pitches. He's smart. I think he's a little bit more advanced than Hoagland was at this point. Hoagland was an interesting case because Hoagland was a first round pick by the Pirates, but also not on a lot of other clubs' radars. From talking to a couple of scouts, so it's like I think he's a little more advanced. I don't think you're going to see him again. He does throw four pitches. I think the uh, I think the slider and his changeup are probably pretty much pretty further along than his fastball. But I say all that to say is Hoagland got killed last year because he would just kind of live off his fastball. Like, like in high school, all these kids could just chuck their fastball in the strike zone by these kids and live off it. And Hoagland kind of had a rude awakening that that doesn't really fly in the SEC. Like I was looking up his numbers last night and Hoagland only walked 14 dudes last year, which sounds great. But in some ways, when you're a starter eating that many innings, <laughs> you maybe like, throw one outside a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an indictment, and that's kind of how you got pummeled. So I, I don't think you'll see that from Diamond. I, not that Hoagland is not smart, but like Diamond seems like a really intelligent dude. I believe he was the kid that was the Stanford commit, if I'm not mistaken. And they like didn't academically like they academically were like sorry, like it was one of the like an admissions deal. Um, I need to double check that before I say that, but I think that is the case. So. You have that. You have him on Sunday. Hoagland is going to be the interesting one because if this team is going to be good, uh, you were he, Hoagland is going to have to take a major jump. Yeah, uh, uh, Diamond was a Diamond was a Stanford guy and basically got denied by admissions because the admission standard there are absurd. So that, that's that is quite interesting. But uh, he didn't land in such a terrible place. I don't think he seemed pretty pretty happy to be there. But anyway, Hoagland is going to be the guy that's going to have to take a jump. Like, they can't have Sunday Gunner Hoagland and be good. Like, he's going to have to be much better. I think his secondary stuff, as I mentioned with Diamond, is probably going to be better. I think he learned a lot from last year. And, you know, I, maybe I'm making too much out of something, but talking to him yesterday, like, last year, a lot of times he was kind of walking around like someone shot his puppy. And, like, he seemed like a guy that, that thought this was going to be a little bit easier than it was. And he seems a little, a lot more relaxed and a lot more confident. I think that's kind of like, if you're giving me a pitching staff guy's numbers and you're giving me a fielder's number and I can tell you where this team went, give me Tim Elko and give me Gunnar Hoagland. You could probably gauge pretty well at how good or bad this team's going to be. If, if I knew their end of the season numbers now. So, and then it'll be interesting to see what Nikhazy does on Friday. Cause he's not an elite level arm talent as good of a pitcher as he is. It's a whole different beast on Friday nights in the SEC against, you know, projected. I mean, I, I, I haven't looked it up yet, but I'll, I wonder, I'm going to, I might write something about this. I wonder on the Friday night talent, how many top, how many first round draft picks Doug Nikhazy will pitch against this year. I can think of at least two off the top of my head, Hancock at Georgia, Lacey at Texas A&M. And I guarantee there's someone else. Uh, JT Ginn, even though he uh, is he draft eligible this year, I don't remember. Um, but I mean, that's I three so. potential guys off the top of my head. I mean, it's, well, so, he see. Do they play Vanderbilt? Yes, they do play Vanderbilt. So Kumar Rocker, go ahead <laughs> throw that one on this. But I don't think <laughs> Rocker's not a 21 year old baby either. I don't think so. I think he's got another year as well. No, but you got to get either. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, first round pick now or potential first round pick. Uh, it, it's. Did he show you enough last year 
to make you think that he can compete? Because I guess you're not, I understand why it's talked about that this pitcher versus this pitcher, but really it's him versus the lineups. Do you think that he can do enough? Did he show you enough last year to get get through six and a third innings, only giving up a run or two and keeping them in the game? Did he show you enough last year that makes you think he can do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he pitched, I mean, and in, in, even in the biggest moments in Arkansas, what have you, he, he saved the team a couple of times and delivered outings when he had to. So I absolutely, he's a smart, it's not like he's got bad stuff. Like he's not like thumbing it across the plate. Like that, whatever that ace that Illinois had last year that threw like 87, like it's not something like that. It's just, he doesn't have the big snapping curveball and stuff that some of these kind of first round talents have, but he's definitely capable and, and good enough to be a starter. This I think he'll be a stronger Friday night guy than Will Etheridge. People forget last year, Will Etheridge was a bullpen dude going into last year and was just kind of thrown into Friday night by default because they had to th- replace all three rotation guys last year. It was two freshmen and a dude that had been in long relief last year. So he'll be stronger than them. It's just the league's probably a little stronger on Friday nights this year. But and yeah, the he's schedule more than capable. just absolutely miserable on top of Yeah, I mean, they, they drew... Florida, Georgia, and Vandy from the East. Those are the teams unanimously <laughs> projected one, two, and three in the East. Like, you couldn't even really make an argument for anyone else. Uh, I mean, Kentucky they would have gotten Kentucky and Missouri and South Carolina, you know? Yeah, just give them one of the three. But, man, they drew drew all that. I mean, I guess it helps. I mean, people say, well, that'll help their RPI. Like, shit, at a certain point, you're in the SEC. Your RPI, like, you don't really need any help. I mean, you're playing Louisville the first weekend of the season. But anyway, that's their rotation. Uh, I'll go through this starting nine, even though it's not really a starting nine, and then we'll just kind of bounce around wherever you want to go with it. But I'll just read out what Mike had. Obviously, shortstop, uh, Anthony Servideo, that's a given. His blonde hair is long and luscious. I saw it up close and personal yesterday. I asked him kind of how he did it and where that started. Uh, You've got Keenan at third. You have John Hurst at catcher. So those are the three uh, certain things. They're uh, Bench or Peyton Chatonier in uh, at second base, which I was kind of surprised by that. I think Bench will end up starting, but you know, leaving the possibility open, Chatonier will probably play in the outfoot as well in a corner outfoot spot. Elko or Kale Baker at first base. I wrote about this yesterday. And I probably kind of regret it a little bit. I said if Baker hits, he could probably play. I mean, he'll definitely DH or he could be in a corner outfit spot. Elk, if they both hit, Elko's probably more inclined to play the outfield just because Baker's like 270 pounds. What but, about Kevin Graham? Uh, so I see in your lineup that you've got him, or that Mike said that he was going to play some left. Is first base just, was he a stopgap playing first or, or what's going on there? No, I, I think he, I mean, I think he could, and he was fine. I actually asked Mike about this directly yesterday. I said, how has Kevin Graham transitioned to the outfield? And he looked at me and said, average, and then kind of <laughs> laughed and said it was, okay. it was I mean, he was being br- brutally honest. He just said, good enough to where you can justify putting him out there because Kevin Graham is out there because he, he hits, and he hits the ball over the fence. Like he's not appreciate coach's honesty, though. <laughs> sure. I mean, if it looked, and Thomas Dillard developed into a competent, like fielder, like outfielder. So like Kevin Graham, if Thomas Dillard can do it, Kevin Graham could definitely do it as well. And Graham had to learn a new position at first base last year. Outfield, there's probably less nuances to learn. You just got to kind of track balls, cut off men, all that type of stuff. So he'll be okay. But yeah, that's where I was kind of headed next. Uh, left field, either he, him or Leatherwood. And this could go the same for right field too. Uh, right field, Mike said, Mike kind of teased everybody. After he announced Ely as the opening day starter at center in right field, he goes Plumley, 
And then he goes, or, and then named off four names, any other names you could think, Chatagnier, um, I mean, what have you. There's going to be, I mean, they're going to play as many as six or seven guys in the outfield opening weekend. So, like, it's, it's, that's the most fluid spot on the team, as I kind of mentioned uh, before this yesterday and, um, and in the uh, preview I wrote yesterday as well. I mean, Ely drew the uh, start and center opening day. I, the, that's not set in stone by any means. I think the like he and Cade Sammons, in my opinion, are about even at this point. I think the reason Sammons isn't playing on, uh, excuse me, isn't playing on Friday is because Louisville is throwing left-handed Reed Detmers, and Sammons hits left-handed. So you want the right as many righties in the lineup as possible. I think he'll get a hard look there. I think Ely's got a chance to win the job. I'm not like down on Ely or anything. I just don't think that's set in stone yet. The other two outfield spots are wide open. This is going to be a fluid thing. You've got kind of three dudes that you know exactly what you have in them, and Servideo, Keenan, and then Dunhurst behind the plate, who we'll get to in a second. And then Elko, Baker, you know, whoever uh, at first base. Uh, you've got Kevin Graham could DH, the Van Cleve kid could DH, Kale Baker could DH. Like the rest of this stuff, out the two the corner outfield slots, first base and DH are basically they've got about seven dudes, and whoever the hell is going to hit is going to play in those spots essentially. And then Ely in center, um, does that surprise you? No, not at all. I mean, he was a really toolsy prospect. You know, I, I mean, I, I was about to get in an argument with the guy yesterday, but I just kind of held my tongue and said. He was a he was a high draft pick and uh and didn't and uh elected to come to college. Like, but that's not entirely true. He had a no, rough that's, senior that's season not and that slipped. Happened. But at one time he was projected as a first round draft pick, and he's a good baseball player and he's got tools and he hits to the gaps and he's a good defender. So no, that doesn't shock me at all. He's a really good baseball player. Um, I mean, I, and I think that speaks to I mean, in terms of just raw athleticism, his ability to kind of go in there and. I mean, be in the mix, much less locked down an opening day starting job in center field uh, in that short amount of time without having a fall is remarkable. I just don't think it's set in stone yet because I think they like Salmon's defense. I think he's a really athletic kid. I think he's got a lot of speed. I think that de- he's definitely going to get a look. And who knows if he hits? I mean, you could event- you could have them both out there, one in the corner outfit slots. I don't necessarily see that, but... I don't think it's set in stone, but no, Ely being out there doesn't shock me at all. He's a good baseball player. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, I guess him being a running back, that doesn't affect his football at all, but it's it's wild to see who is going to be, I mean, as far as talent goes, coming back, I mean, a high-level running back in the SEC. I know Kylan Hill's back. I know Najee Harris is back, but the rest of the league, I mean, he's up there as far as what, his production can be in 2020 and he's going to start in center field for the baseball team uh, leading up to that season. Uh, what an athlete that is. That's just uh, extremely impressive. What about the other football player? I'm just going to go ahead and ask because we'll get questions about it on Friday and just get it out of the way. Uh, what did Mike say anything yesterday about Plumley and his potential role? And if we can expect to see him maybe even as early as this weekend. Yeah, he was the he was the first name Mike threw out at right field, and I kind of my ears kind of perked up, and I was like, "This kid's really going to start." And then he named four other guys that could potentially start in right field on opening day. So it sounds like he's in the mix. Again, I don't really know. Like, I don't know much about Plumlee at the plate. I don't know exactly what he is as a baseball player. Obviously, I know he's very speedy, very athletic, and can probably go get balls at a pretty good rate in the outfield. I just don't know what he is. I'd like to see it. So definitely in the mix. 
I just, I mean, I, I don't think he's quite as far along as Ely. I would give Ely a better shot at contributing and playing every day as opposed to Plumlee. But it sounds like Plumlee's firmly in the mix for, for playing time in the outfield. And again, it's just so hard to tell on opening day, particularly when you have as many newcomers as they have. Like, I mean, even at the end of February, I don't think it's going to be kind of completely set in stone of what this team's best lineup is, you know, I mean, they're always going to have matchup lineups, lefty versus righty, but who their best 10 to 11 guys are. I'm not even sure that's going to be decided by the end of February. So it would definitely be interesting to watch play out, but Plumlee definitely in the mix. I'm just, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, you know, how that will end up playing out, but I don't know. It'll be fascinating to watch because there are a lot of open spots on this team. As we've kind of mentioned before, um, I mean, this is this is a team that's going to pitch pretty well, presumably, and whether they can hit with these guys, the Elkos, the Bakers, the Leatherwoods, the Kevin Grahams of the world will determine kind of where this team goes, how high they fly or how low they go, because they're going to pitch at a level to host. Can they fill a formidable middle of the lineup around Tyler Keenan to score enough runs? That's kind of eventually what's going to make it or break it for this team, in my opinion. Yeah, so... Anything else uh, that was said yesterday that stood out to you? I'm fascinated by all this platooning. And I know that Bianco does this uh, damn near every year with the lefty-righty thing at least, but it it feels like there is a ton. And maybe that's just media day stuff, and then when it comes down to it uh, coming up on Friday. Today's Wednesday, right? Yeah. Uh, I was about to say tomorrow. (laughs) Coming up Friday that it's not as fluid as it seems here, but – there are a lot of moving pieces to this team. Do you think that is uh, just what it has to be? Or, like, is there a timeline when you think they'll start shoring up the lineup? Or is this uh, – what do you think about this in general? As a, as a baseball mind like you, having this much fluidity in your lineup – and, again, this weekend is going to matter more for the fans for some reason than the actual team. They can go 0-3 and, and it won't matter, 3-0 and, and it won't matter – and any combination in between, and it really won't matter. What do you think about the fluidity of the lineup and how it will impact this team and how long it'll stay this way? Well, it's just a product of them having, it's just a product of them replacing as many guys as they have to replace. What they replace, Keenan, Servideo, you replace seven of your nine regular starters. Kevin Graham was kind of a regular starter by the end of the year just because his bat was so good, uh, but he was still a matchup guy. So I think it's just a product of having replaced it. I mean, there's really, like, when you when you come back and you replace seven of your nine everyday guys, like, there's not a way to know, okay, this guy's going to play, this guy's going to play, this guy's going to play without actually playing, you know, games. I mean, it's going to take 20, 25 games to flesh itself flesh this out it's gonna i mean it just like any other year with pitching staff or whatever you could be a weekend or two into conference play before kind of actually finding a lineup that sticks and go with it i mean there's been two to three teams in mike bianco's last five that have been that way and it just kind of it it takes a while for you to figure out who can hit because baseball and college baseball is already a small enough sample size that's what i always like people get mad at mike not embracing analytics and i get that to some degree but if you go full-on numbers nerd in a game in a season that's 58 games, it, it, it's too small of a sample size. Like, that's not wise. And so that kind of translates here in the sense that, like, you've got to kind of develop a sample size of what these guys can do and what they can't do. And it's going to be tougher because you've got a lot of guys you have to get at bat. So I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's just a natural product of 
having a really older veteran team graduate, or not graduate in this case, they all go pro after junior year, and just having to replace them. This is very, I mean, this happened in 17. It just happens every couple of years. Ole Miss is the only. I'm sorry. No, I was just saying Ole Miss isn't the only team in the league or the only team in the country having to go through it. It's just kind of what happens every couple of years. Should college baseball expand its season? I mean, I would be a fan of it not starting in fe- uh, in terms of more games. No, I like I, I enjoy I enjoy most every game mattering. Okay. Like I, I I think SEC weekends are awesome because each game is crucial, and particularly with like when teams that I'm covering are in like a a postseason chase and trying to get the numbers right and trying to get in the postseason, or even hell chasing the SEC West or a host spot or whatever. Every game matters, and I don't think they should get rid of. It. I think that's awesome. Now. And this will never happen because of summer ball and summer leagues and all that type of stuff. But and it just kind of is what it is. But it does kind of suck that they're playing games in February when it's so damn cold. Like if this season could start like March fifteenth, I would be all for that. Yeah. You start for example, Mississippi State. April. Yeah, um, Mississippi State had to move up their game Friday. I I guess we got to keep an eye on whether or not Ole Miss is going to do it. I have a feeling they're not for some reason. Um, because, uh, honestly, when it's 45 degrees, I understand why Mississippi State's doing it. They want full daylight uh, when it's going to be this cold. But what's the difference between 45 and 35? At some point, the sun being out is not really going to make that much of a difference on Friday. Uh, but it's so cold that they moved their uh, their Friday game with Wright State up to 1 o'clock. So it sucks. Because the, I mean, you have a huge uh, – okay, it's not huge because I've been talking it down for the last hour – it's not a huge series this weekend. The outcome doesn't matter. But it's an interesting series. It's, it's cool that Louisville is coming to Oxford to start the season. And the weather is going to suck so hard. And that's a shame. Yeah, it is. But, it, it, and, I mean, we're in the South. Imagine, like, I, I, like I, it sucks worse for, like, Big Ten teams. Because they, do, they definitely have days where they just like, they can't play. Like, there's snow on the ground. So. And they only practice inside. Like, they cannot practice outside. And they play the first, what is it, the first third of their schedule down South just so they can get games in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, they, 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 you're exactly right. They have to go on the road. I mean, college baseball in so many ways, and some of it's, it's, some of it's, it's uh, self inflicted, some of it's not, just gets absolutely screwed in so many ways, whether it's the season, the scholarship deal, like it, it just, it kind of sucks. And, you know, as people down south appreciate, it's an interesting sport. Like it, the games, in my opinion, take too long, like particularly midweek games and stuff, they kind of get silly. But, like, good SEC weekends are, are interesting and compelling television. And, I mean, I always say this every year when it comes to May. One of the more underrated weekends of the year are the college baseball regional and super regional weekends. You talk about – we talked about on radio yesterday not watching casual professional baseball games if you're not rooting for your team. But those regional games when the drama's high, to me, is like – I mean, it's, it's your college version of playoff baseball. I, I, I love those weekends the, when all the regionals are on. And you've got teams in elimination games and stuff like that. That shit is awesome to me. So, it's an interesting sport. It just kind of gets, uh, it kind of uh, gets the leftovers from the two money making sports. Uh, we can get into Louisville some if you want to, or we can wait for Friday. I don't care. Uh, spoiler Let's alert. wait for Friday. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do that Friday podcast. We'll take questions. Obviously, your uh, your people's holiday, but um, we'll save that for then. Especially because. You know, we, uh, if all things hold up, the radio show will basically not exist <laughs> because 
all of our stations will be covered up. So Yeah, spoiler alert, they're going to have nine guys throw in the mid-90s. They're pretty much just Vanderbilt North, but we will get into that more on Friday. Uh, I think that's about all we had for today. I don't think there was much else pressing out there uh, from a big-picture sports story-wise. Did we miss well, anything? Aside from Mel Tucker uh, three days ago oh, turning yeah, down no- the Michigan State job and publicly tweeting, like, uh, I'm ready to focus up on this season. And also being the same guy that said there's no transfer portal in the real world. And also the guy who was literally meeting with alumni of the University of Colorado, big-time donors and stuff, the night he took a different job. I mean, I it's more money, and it's the right move for him. But what a snake, man. That is so shady. Like, if you know that you're in discussions with Michigan State— Maybe don't go schmooze some boozers and uh, boozers, some boosters and uh, ask for their money and do all that crap. Just cancel the event or don't show up if you know you're taking another job and maybe shut the hell up about transfer portals. Yeah, I saw that. I haven't read much about this. I was going to read Feldman's story after we got done here because I actually didn't see this until this morning because it looked like it broke at like midnight. Yeah, so thing. Yeah, I mean. I get coaches leaving, bettering their career, but like he was vocally outspoken, like you said, that the there's no transfer portal in the real world. Like if, if you're even thinking about leaving for another job, like don't say that shit. You just look like an idiot. And like I mean, I'm not like I'm not like I'm not gonna trash the guy for leaving and getting a better job, but don't like crush kids for transferring too when you just up in the middle of the night quit and leave. Uh, yeah. That's a really good hire for Michigan State because that's a wildly unattractive job right now with all the shit they have going on. Like that, that's interesting. They in kind of in State's way, given the timing of the search, there was a number of ways that search could have gone squirrely and gone really bad, and they ended up with a good candidate. I, I was surprised at the quality of the hire for Michigan State. It's a, a huge indictment on the Pac-12. If you think about what Michigan State and Mississippi State are. In their respective leagues, Mississippi State is behind, decidedly behind Alabama and LSU and Auburn and Georgia and Florida and probably Texas A&M, even though they've smoked them over the last few years. As far as program standing, Mississippi State is not on at least everybody besides A&M's level uh, that I just mentioned. Same thing with Michigan State. They are decidedly behind Michigan and Ohio State and Penn State in the Big Ten and Wisconsin probably. And they've got a huge lawsuit coming, an NCAA trouble coming. And still, they were able to hire a one-year coach who had a losing record from Colorado away from Colorado. And Mississippi State was able to hire Mike Leach away from Washington State. The Pac-12 is losing their highest quality coaches to not high-level programs in different leagues. That is a, a, a huge indictment on the Pac-12 in general. Yeah, because uh, uh, Mel Tucker did a pretty good job at Colorado. He did. He did. I said losing record, which isn't fair, but uh, it was only there for one year. Yeah, he uh, that I don't know. That sucks for Colorado because the domino effect is like, well, now they're screwed. They're very screwed. So interesting story. I'll remind you one more time to go to LB's University Avenue. Greg is not going to transfer or take a new job. Greg will be there for baseball season throughout University Avenue across from Kroger. Uh, as you head to Swayze this weekend, go stop by and get some meat and throw it on the grill out in left, right field, wherever it is you choose to sit. Greg feeds the baseball team. He can feed you. Still got the Lane Kiffin special going on, Keith Carter special, eight or six ounce bacon wrap fillets for 10 bucks 
or 15 bucks, depending on which one you choose. Uh, he's got customs, custom, I can't, I can't talk today, <laughs> daily specials, custom cuts. You can do plate lunches. He's got all kinds of stuff going on. Had a couple listeners go get the uh, ribeye sausage and Swayze sausage along with a Keith Carter special, I think. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, and it was delicious. So go see him, University Avenue, across from Kroger. That's all I got for today. We'll be, uh, unless you got anything else, we'll be back at it on Friday. That's it, man. All right, send us your mailbag questions. Tweet me, tweet Borky, text me, email me, whatever you got. Mailbag Friday, we'll be back on Friday. We'll have uh, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. you got a huge basketball game now suddenly, and then, of course, it is college baseball opening day. So, Uh, Be thinking on your pressing questions, send them to us, and participate in the People's Holiday. But for now, for Michael Borky, I am Brian Scott Rippey, and we will catch you guys on Friday. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.